Welcome to the All About the Customer podcast brought to you by Influtive, where we talk with customer-obsessed people to uncover how you can be more customer-focused. I'm your host, Dan Calva. Today, I'm joined by Donna Webb. Donna is the world's leading expert in customer onboarding. For more than two decades, she's helped high-growth startups and established enterprises transform new customers into loyal champions. As a recognized thought leader, influencer, strategist, advisor, author, and speaker, Donna gets to the heart of customer success. She's also the author of Onboarding Matters. You're never going to guess what we talked about today. Customer onboarding. Now, there's so many parts of the customer journey, but Donna believes that onboarding is the single most important part. When we failed that, everything else tends to fall apart. In our conversation, we dive into why customer-facing teams are so siloed, why onboarding happens before you close a sale, and her orchestrated onboarding framework she's developed to help nail onboarding every time. Donna, thanks so much for being on the show. Welcome to the All About the Customer podcast. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to talk about onboarding. That's why you're on the show. You've built your career on this. You've stuck your flag in the ground around onboarding. You know, there's so many parts of the customer journey that we can focus on. Like, why do you think that onboarding is the most important part? Well, Dan, I'm glad you want to talk about onboarding because that's my favorite topic. I've been working with customer-facing teams, customer enablement, customer success for a long time. You know, I just was wondering, like, I kept seeing this gap especially at the beginning of customer success, there was a lot of focus on the renewal and there was a lot of focus on going live with the product, but not really engaging customers at the beginning of the relationship when it matters most. And the reality is that not all customer interactions are created equal, that the beginning carries way more weight. And the reason for that is the way that our brains work, that first impressions matter. And uh, we go into a lot of subconscious judgment, and we could talk a lot more about this if you like, but our brains just, they weight that first impression more than any other interaction. Depending on that first impression, it impacts every other touch point along the journey. So why do you think we don't give enough weight to it? Because it seems like something we should focus on. Do we just get too caught up in patting ourselves on the back and then forget that we have to deliver on what we sold? Or? I got to tell you, Dan, I just talked to a company where they said the CEO is all about closing the deal. It's ABC, always be closing. But you know what? I've worked with so many companies that that gets them into trouble because they're always closing but then the implementation and onboarding teams are like struggling to cram these customers that don't fit into their product and into their platform, and then they churn. So I'm just amazed that this always be closing, that you know, time kills all deals, that those are still around because our whole relationship with customers has changed. It's not just about closing the deal, it's about opening a relationship. And I think we all know that acquiring new customers is a lot harder than retaining existing customers. So it's very interesting that we we kind of don't focus on that. It's also a lot more expensive. Yeah. And we just focus on these new logos. I want to go back to this you know, bad first impression. You talked about something there where it always be closing, like we focus on you know bringing in these new logos. Why do you feel like customer facing teams are so siloed and disjointed? Because I think it makes sense when but a SaaS company, why the finance team and the dev team are siloed. They don't work together. But, you know, seemingly sales and CS should be on the same page. Like, why do you think they get so siloed? 
Well, first of all, the sales and marketing teams used to be really siloed. They used to be at each other's throats and always pointing fingers at each other. Over the last 10 years, they've learned how to work together. And a lot of that has been due to technology, like more access to data, like uh, Marketo, HubSpot, Salesforce, so that, that those teams can really measure and define and prescribe every point along the sales journey. And then you have the post-sales journey, customer-facing teams, where they've traditionally operated in silos. So customer success is the new player on the field, coming up to about being 10 years old now. <laughs> A lot of the other teams, customer education, support, implementation, or consulting services, professional services, those have been around a lot longer and they're traditionally operated in silos. And they've been more measured about how many classes have we delivered? How many, you know, what's the utilization rate and bench time for a consultant? How many support tickets have been logged for support agents? And while all of those are important, they're not really looking at the customer or looking at the company and having the impact overall. So I see that there's this huge opportunity to break down those silos and get those customer facing teams to work together together. Customer success is the newer kid on the block. And oftentimes I run around trying to do all of those customer facing things rather than like trusting that there's these organizations that have been around a lot longer. They don't have to do it all and that everyone can play their part and develop and then deliver a cohesive, harmonious journey for the customers because it's all about the customer. Yeah, it's, that'd be a great name for a podcast if anybody were to come up with an all about the customer <laughs> podcast. Uh, so, so you talk about, you know, training has their metrics. You, you talk about sales folks. They're rewarded for just bringing new customers. Like, do you think those incentives are what drive a lot of the, the silos in these customer facing teams? They're just different competing incentives. The sales teams are still like incentivized to be hunters. I think there's just so much, there's a sexiness, there's the adrenaline hit of getting new logos. And of course you need initial customers. I mean, when you're a subscription company, you have to have some customers that then can renew. But there's still, I think the sales world is stuck in old paradigms. And then traditionally, those teams have been very, there's the before the sale and after the sale. And those groups don't really align as much. More companies are bringing in chief revenue officers, which are owning all the revenue, whether it's new revenue or coming from existing customers. So I think shifts in that way, but it just amazes me how slow it is overall. So I come back to this idea that you mentioned where it's this bad first impression. And so you, you talk in your blog posts and a lot of different stuff online that so much of churn happens during that onboarding phase. And in your book, you, you quantify it that, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's 50% of churn happens. 53%. 53% more specifically yeah. happens during onboarding, which is a mind boggling number. Or because of poor onboarding. The answer is probably both to some extent, but how much of it do you think is because of this bad first impression, the bad taste in your mouth versus part of the point of onboarding is setting people up for success, having your customers understand you need to do these things to be successful with our product. Do you think it's one more than the other? It's, it's certainly both, but do you, do you find one more than the other causes more churn? Well, I worked with a company in Finland and they have a software for, it's open source software for website developers. The CSMs, customer success managers, but they're, the way they were incentivized was to close renewals. So they're busy chasing down all the renewals in the last 90 days. But I said, well, let's look at the numbers for how many are churning in the first 90 days. And it actually came to that first, that 53% exactly. More than half of that 30% were churning in the first 30 days. 
when customers fail to launch, they're going to churn. And they may not churn in those first 90 days, but they're probably churning because they're not getting value. Now, a lot of companies, they think onboarding is all about going live with the product. They go, okay, great, the product's live, check, and they're done. But if the customers aren't getting value, then they're not going to stick around. They're not going to use your product. They're not going to adopt it. They're definitely not going to expand or refer you to other companies. So just like, you know, I got my iPhone here. If you tell me about a really cool product, a new app to check out on my phone and I download it, but if I don't get any value from it, probably in the first 90 seconds, it's just going to sit there. And next time I'm clearing away my homepage, I'm going to delete it because just looking at my iPhone last week going, what the hell is this? I have no idea what this does. Delete. It's not just about having the product and delivering the product. It's about delivering value. And I would like to see a lot more customer facing teams focusing on value, not just implementing the product, not just going live. And you talk so much in your book how onboarding should happen actually like before the deal is closed, which I think is something that's counterintuitive because, you know, we all think of onboarding as like we make the sale now onboarding happens. Like, what do you mean by that? Well, to help the customer know what happens after the deal closes. So the way that our brains work is that if we don't have information, then we start creating stories. And the reality is we mostly go into fear and doubt and worrying about worst case scenarios. So it's really important that companies start to share with companies towards the later stages of the sales cycle, what happens after the sale, and really make that a key differentiator. I know that you're the managing director of Upshot at Influitive, and at a prior company I worked at, we had a program called Upshift. We really branded it to highlight it as a key differentiator. So it wasn't our best kept secret. We told our customers, we don't just sell you our product, we have the services to make sure that you are successful and that you're transforming your business as a result. That's what we wanna do is really make sure that companies know about all of that awesome stuff we provide. There's things called cognitive closure. So during the sales cycle, we need to kind of help the brain know we're ending the sales cycle and we're beginning the, the, the customer journey. And so talking about what happens after the sales journey during the sales cycle helps the customer trust you and know that they're in good hands. So I was talking with the CFO of a company I was working with, and they were looking into a product, like a digital contract signature tool similar to DocuSign. And during the buyer journey, during the sales cycle, the sales rep shared with them, here's how we work with you after the sale closes. We have your dedicated CSM. They have a website that details all the onboarding that has a photo of their dedicated CSM. And in the contract, it actually detailed during onboarding, these are all the things we do for you and how long each of these take. And these are all the things you do and how long each of those take. And that was in the contract. And the CFO told me, this company has their stuff together. I want to work with them. So that actually helped to shorten the sales cycle. So while a lot of companies and heads of sales are all about, you know, always be closing, time kills all deals. If you just slow down a little bit and show them how awesome you are, then it might actually close the deals faster. And do you ever see companies actually start kicking off that process a little bit, like maybe actually like introducing them to their CSMs that would be or their, their onboarding consultants? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One company I worked with, they do hardware and software for medical practices. And they had tried bringing in the implementation analysts or implementation consultants during the um, sales journey. And what happened was they started diving into all the technical weeds and overwhelming customers. So then the sales reps are like, get out of my sales, you know. But what I recommended is not the time to dive into technical weeds. It's the time to build relationships, talk big picture, strategy, and set expectations. So that's the time to bring in the CSM, who's going to be that business advisor and maybe introduce them. You know, if it's not appropriate to be assigning the CSM at that stage, maybe the head of CS might come in and just help the prospect know, hey, this is what's coming. This is how we work with you. It's really important for customers to know that you have best practices, that you're not like trying to figure it out and you're like doing you're doing it all from scratch, that you have worked with lots of different companies, you know what you're doing and you have best practices to guide them on. So similarly, let's say, Dan, I hire you as my personal trainer. You know, if I come to you and say and you say to me, hey, Donna, you know, what, what kind of workout in there are you in the mood for today? And I might say, you know what, Dan, I'm kind of tired. Why don't we go for a coffee? Now, that might delight me. That might feel good in the moment, but that's not going to deliver any results. So what I want to know is that you have this proven workable methodology that has worked with hundreds or thousands of clients and that you're taking me along a journey of best practices. That's going to help seal the deal. Donna's point here about closing the deal by bringing up the onboarding process goes along with something I heard recently. At the start of the sales process, your job is to inspire the prospect and get them to buy into this idea of what their life could be like with your solution. But near the end of the deal cycle, your job is to reassure them that things aren't that risky. If someone who's close to signing on the dotted line understands that you have a very clear onboarding process to properly set them up for success, and you've done this countless of times with other people just like them, the risk of failure is pretty low. That's very reassuring for potential customers. So you've developed this framework called orchestrated onboarding. I'd love to go into that a little bit. We don't have to go too in-depth because if, if people want to go in-depth, they can they can buy your book, Onboarding Matters. But tell me a little bit about, you've got the book there, you've got it behind you too, it's, it's everywhere. So let's talk about this orchestrated onboarding framework that you've developed. And I love if you can also talk about really common pitfalls that you see along the process. Sure. So I developed the orchestrated onboarding framework to really help companies guide their new customers to their success outcomes. And what most companies do is they close the deal and jump right into the kickoff and the implementation, the technical weeds, the timelines, the deliverables and milestones. And what that can often do is just overwhelm customers. So I have six stages of my orchestrated onboarding framework, and I'll just talk through them real quickly. So the number one is embark. Then we have handoff, kickoff, adopt, review, expand. The thing is that most companies jump into that kickoff, which is the third stage, and they don't take the time to do an embark and a handoff, which really sets things up for success. And so many times when I talk to companies and they're running into all these troubles and implementation is getting slowed down and delayed and they have this increasing backlog, we address things up front. So the embark stage happens before the deal closes, ideally, just as we were talking, to set expectations, to share best practices, to help the customers know what comes next. And then you have an internal handoff and a customer handoff or a customer alignment meeting to really get everyone in alignment before you start kicking off the project. And so those first two stages are big picture and strategic. 
And then you dive into the details with kickoff and the adopt stage is the implementation and user adoption, user enablement. And then we go into review and expand. And the thing is, there's the expand stage because in reality, you know, even though you might go live with your product, onboarding in reality never ends because there's always new users to onboard. Your product is constantly being updated. New, new releases are coming out anywhere from every two weeks to every two months. With most companies I talk with, so many companies have a land and expand approach. So even though you get that first team, you know, and they're doing awesome, well, are you really formally onboarding all those additional organizations within existing customers? And if not, there's a huge amount of potential you're losing out on. I think one kind of common pitfall, and I think you talk about this in the book, is like most people think of onboarding as starting at that kickoff phase when really embark and handoff are are two missteps. Uh, What other common pitfalls do you see companies making when trying to onboard customers? Well, yeah, everyone wants to skip the handoff. Everyone wants to jump right into the kickoff. And I say, well, you know, what happens during the kickoff? They're like, oh, God, everyone's overwhelmed. And, you know, just because you do it, all you can eat buffet at the kickoff and overwhelm them doesn't mean they're going to process or remember anything. Customer facing teams are so busy just trying to check the box versus really build that relationship. So I recommend you slow down, have an internal handoff so you prepare the customer facing teams and then have a customer handoff where you prepare the customer project teams. You know, some companies, there's the buyer, they buy your products. Maybe someone in procurement buys it, and then suddenly it's getting deployed, and the people who are responsible for that have no idea what was coming and why. And then they might fight you every step of the way. So let's say if you have that customer alignment meeting, then they understand this is what was purchased, this is why, this is where it fits into our priorities, and they hear that from their stakeholder and they can address any concerns and conflicting priorities then. So that prepares you then to move more swiftly during the, the implementation. So, you know, Embark is selling this vision, handoff is passing off between teams, the kickoff is what a lot of people would think of as the onboarding phase. Talk about the, the later stages, adopt, review, and expand. Like what happens during those later stages? So during adopt, that's the implementation and the adoption. So Again, you know, I work with a a lot of high tech companies where they have really cool products. They're amazing software. But just because the product goes live doesn't mean that people are using it. So that's another key area to address that, that companies often don't is that they don't think about the users. And they might just think, well, there's the user, you know, Dan, use the product. And they might do like a walkthrough here. Let me show you how to navigate our product The reality is that people don't care about your product. They're looking to do their job better. They want to be heroes at their company. So there's a real need to define the different personas that are using your product and then guide each of those personas along a journey of value of jobs to be done and not trying to cover everything at once, but to define a journey to guide users along so they can absorb what they're learning and get some initial value and then long-term value. At some companies, change management might be needed. I was talking to a company earlier this week where their product is a whole paradigm shift for users. So just because the product goes live doesn't mean they're using it. There's a lot of resistance. So, um, for example, at a prior company I worked at, we had a sophisticated analytics tool. But the reality is our users were stuck in their spreadsheets. You know, they were they loved them. They had their pivot tables and their conditional formatting. And They didn't want to give them up. It was familiar. It's comfortable. So we needed to address some change management to help them get that mind shift, that mindset to understand the concepts and context so that they would see the value of moving from what's familiar 
to something new and better. Because even though it's new and better, if it's, you know, there'll be resistance because people like to stay with what's comfortable. And what, what about the review stage? What happens then? Yeah, the review. Well, I think there's just an opportunity in the review stage. Most companies t- do most of the talking. And the point of the review is to listen. So while you might want to be sharing product uses, metrics, support tickets, you know, talking about your roadmap, you need to make sure there's time to listen to customers. That initial review, which is during onboarding or maybe, you know, right near the completion of onboarding is to find out how onboarding went and learn how to keep improving your onboarding approach by learning, hey, what worked, what could be improved. And that's a way to kick off ongoing reviews, but also really uh, identify ways that you can improve your your onboarding approach. And, and this all leads up to the expand stage. What happens in that final stage? Yeah, I mean, I talked to a, a well-known, popular project management tool that I use, and they, they're like, oh, yeah, we do a good job with uh, customer onboarding. I'm like, well, what about those other teams, you know, they, in the expand? Oh, yeah, we don't deal with that at all. It's just unbelievable to me. So, um, yeah, so they don't deal with it at all or, you know, it's very ad hoc. And in the world of land and expand and I see us moving more and more into consumption models, consumption and pay as you go approaches, you can't just assume people are going to be getting value. You need to really embrace and engage and, and drive that behavior for any new users within existing customers. So over the course of your career, or even recently, what have you changed your mind on the most when it comes to onboarding? What's something you used to believe that you no longer believe? You know, when I started my own boutique consulting firm over six years ago, a colleague told me, niches is riches. And another colleague was like, well, what's your hashtag? I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't know. You know, what's my niche? I don't know. Um, but over time, I started to see onboarding. And then, you know, there was a time I thought, gosh, maybe I'm t- have I backed myself into a corner But the more I learn about onboarding, the more I write about it, the more I speak about it, the more, the bigger it is. There's so much there because there's what people are doing with their technology. It's about getting teams to work together. It's about the customer experience. It's about neuroscience. So I would say that if there's anything I've learned is like the more I focus on the customer and driving value, the more I see there is to learn and focus on. Onboarding really is the foundation that everything else is built off of. And like a house, the walls and the windows don't matter if the foundation isn't done properly. We get so excited with bringing on a new customer, but then we move on to the next one. The early stages of Donna's orchestrated onboarding framework are particularly interesting because we screw up so much about the early parts of onboarding. We don't handle the handoff from sales to CS well. We didn't even let the customer know what to expect. And then once the customer's kicked off, that's it. We think onboarding's done. But just like you should be regularly checking to see if there are cracks in the foundation of your home, I've recently learned, you should be continually checking to see where the cracks are in your entire onboarding process, from that first touch point all the way to renewal. So you wrote the book, Onboarding Matters. I think it came out almost a year ago as per this recording. Did you write a lot of it during the pandemic? Like how much of it was like pre-pandemic writing versus how much of the writing happened during the pandemic? You know what? Most of it um, happened before the pandemic. So it was not a pandemic book. So I, I was well underway. And then during the pandemic, I was more kind of refining it, editing it and, and doing the, the publishing. 
Yeah. So I'd love to know, you know, with the, the book coming out a year ago and a lot of the writing happening before the pandemic, do you think the pandemic has changed anything with this framework that you've built? Do you think it's made anything more important, anything less important? Is it all the same? You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was talking about how to keep your current customers. So, you know, the whole world was going into this panic and the economy was kind of on hold. As we speak, the economy is kind of uh, shaky. And similarly, and at the beginning of the pandemic, I said to myself and maybe a few other people, if there's any silver lining, maybe this is going to be what really cements customer success. Because companies really need to know that their success comes from their existing customers. And so when you can't keep selling, 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 then you really need to be nurturing and expanding your existing customers. That's where, you know, McKinsey shows that 50 to 80% of revenue is coming from existing customers, even in startups. And so when you've got that revenue cake, the new revenue, the new deals is like the icing on top. I feel like customer success over the last two and a half years has become just more established, more cemented in because companies are realizing that they need to take care of their existing customers. They can't just keep going on a selling spree. That's not the, that's not the way to success. Yeah, you can't keep bringing in new customers and leaving your old customers behind. Not like that, that won't uh, do much for, for the long run. So what haven't we talked about around onboarding that you think would be good for the listeners to, to learn about? Well, I would say just take a look at your own organizations and, you know, be honest about our teams operating in silos. Are they working together for customers? Are you going live with your product or are you driving customers to value? Those are things that I would really um, want to emphasize so I always end these things off with a question of what's one thing that the listeners at home can do to make themselves more customer obsessed? The one thing that you can do to be more customer obsessed is to listen to your customers. So many companies I work with are so busy. You know, everyone's busy. They got a lot of meetings. There's, you know, they're working in sprints, but it's all for the customer. And I truly believe that when customers win, you win. So slow down and listen to five customers. Schedule a meeting, 20 to 30 minutes. It doesn't have to be a long meeting. Put together some questions. I like to just ask simple things, open-ended questions like, what's working well? What suggestions for improvement do you have? You know, maybe interview five customers who are recently onboarded and find out how it went for them. Companies I talked with, I often interview the customers of companies I work with. By one company, this they the customers told me, oh, the CSMs are awesome. We really like them. But they told me, call me when you have a problem. And I don't want problems. So what we found out was the customer, the CSMs were just waiting for customers to have problems rather than being proactive and prescriptive. Find out what's working well. Find out about another awesome onboarding experience they've had with another vendor you can learn from. Um, I learned so much from the customers of companies I work with. They, they have the answers. I don't have the answers. Uh, my clients don't have the answers. The customers have the answers. They're not just working with your product. They're working with lots of products. And we all have experiences of being consumers of what we, what, what we know we like. At my prior company that I highlight in the book, we had this internal perspective that every customer was unique. They needed technical experts to really drive them along the implementation, which makes it very expensive and hard to scale. And I thought BS. And I interviewed 10 customers. All of them said the same thing over and over. 
we don't need technical experts. We need more of a quarterback, somebody who like is, you know, guiding the journey. And when I shared what the customers were saying, that allowed us to create a scalable program where we had more of a strategic business advisor CSMs. And we still had these technical folks, we called them uh, customer success engineers, that were there to help customers along the right points of their journey to really get the most value. But it enabled us to create a more scalable customer success approach. So your customers have the answer, take the time to listen, and then see what trends appear. You know, let's say if I talk to Dan and you say I went too fast, I talk to someone else, they say I went too slow. You don't change everything as a result of what one person says. But um, see what trends appear. And I find after about five or six interviews, there's some common threads. Yeah, and that's really interesting that a lot of times that's all it takes. You know, like we don't want to change everything based on one conversation, but a lot of times you don't need to have a hundred conversations to really see what common pain points are. Yeah, exactly. Great, Donna. Well, this is this has been terrific. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for including me, Dan. I really enjoyed our conversation. For so many of us in SaaS, we unfortunately don't have simple products. We have powerful products that do wonderful things, but like any good tool, you first need to learn how to use it. We overinvest in bringing in new logos, but then don't make sure those logos stick around, which is confusing since we know how much more expensive it is to acquire new customers than it is to keep an existing one happy. I love Donna's approach here that onboarding can be such a differentiator that it can help you close deals faster. And it's such a differentiator because of how important it is, but also because so many other companies do it poorly. Getting our customers off to a bad start with our product not only leaves a bad taste in their mouth, but also means we haven't given them what they need to be successful. We've put them in an unfamiliar place without Google Maps and said, eh, figure it out. And then we wonder why they churn. Donna's book, Onboarding Matters, goes into a lot more details on her approach to onboarding. And it's worth checking out if you want to go deeper on this subject. This has been the All About the Customer podcast brought to you by Influtive. I've been your host, Dan Kalmar. Until next time, start looking for the cracks in your onboarding processes and also in the foundation of your home.